You're listening to Red Button. Conversation, please. Thank you. Now, are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then we'll begin. Welcome to Box 39 Red Button, our later evening conversation show coming live from Studio One at Cone Radio here on 106.6 FM. I'm Bill Lawrence, and welcome to another edition of Red Button Orbits, where under your curatorship, you, our listeners, help us to take a circular tour of music, starting and finishing at the same point. What we listen to, as always, is completely up to you, because it is you that will make the links and find the connections. Our musical rotunda must have associations, however unusual or unexpected, obscure or indeed inscrutable. Think of the next hour as like a happy wander around a gorgeous yurt of sound. It's not obvious in design and is probably going to have a few bits you weren't expecting. So let me know what you want the next path to be in our journey. You will be my guide. You will deliver my OS music map references. You are in control. So let's begin at the beginning with that Crossroads theme that we just heard. Now, Crossroads was a television soap opera on British TV and it ran on ITV uh, from 1964 to 1988. That was the imperial phase with Noel Gordon, uh, wobbly sets, wobbly wigs and wobbly acting, followed by a short revival from 2001 for a couple of years. And it was set in a fictional motel, whatever a motel was, in the Midlands, uh, and crosswords became a byword, didn't it, for cheap production values, particularly in the 1970s and early 1980s. But despite this, you know, there's the series did, did regularly attract huge audiences during this time. 15 million viewers. Nowadays, the soaps might get 1 million. So it was phenomenally popular. The man who wrote that theme originally was uh, a man called Tony Hatch. He wrote the Crossroads theme and he said uh, once in an interview, he said the budget for the music was so low that it actually had to be recorded in a TV studio in Birmingham. The original theme was apparently two tunes and these tunes were done so they could be played separately or together in counterpoint because he made sure they shared the same chord sequence. Hatch used a small rhythm section just uh, and a harp and um, a 12 string guitar and the second theme played on the oboe and it's got that right at the beginning the famous nine note motif the call sign dum 
dum dum dum dum dum dum dum dum which we all remember and love anyway a special arrangement of the theme and you heard that blended in there was recorded by wings um uh, Paul McCartney, him of Beatles fame, yes, the ex-Beatle, uh, and that was occasionally used in the late 70s by the television programme, usually when an episode ended with a dramatic event. <laughs> or oh, so dramatic... I'm always overcome with emotion just thinking about it. Now, that arrangement of Wings, that version appeared on the band's 1975 album, Venus and Mars. That was the fourth studio album by the British-American rock band Wings and the sixth album by Paul McCartney after the breakup of The Beatles in 1970. And it was released uh, as a follow-up to the album Band on the Run. And it continued uh, Wings' huge run of commercial success and, in fact, went on for a a year-long worldwide tour. Um, So... Denny Lane played uh, uh, guitars and keyboards and percussion on the Wings album Venus and Mars that holds that Chris Crossroads theme. And Denny Lane stayed with Wings from 1971 to 1981. Now, Denny Lane was actually born Brian Frederick Hines in 1944. He's still alive at the time of recording this. And he was a founder member of the Moody Blues, which he played from in the mid-60s. And he's been with a, a lot of different artists over six decades. And when he left the Moody Blues and before joining Wings, Denny Lane formed the Electric Spring Band in 1966. And here's a rare and interesting track from Denny Lane's Electric Spring Band from 1967. This is Say You Don't Mind.
You're listening to Box 39, Bread Button, Orbits, and I'm Bill Lawrence. And tonight, we're taking a musical journey where it began at the crossroads. And we just heard Denny Lane's electric string band, and of course, Denny Lane played guitar with wings when they played the crossroads theme on their 1974 album, Venus and Mars. And listener Charlotte George has supplies details for us to make our next musical connection. So thank you very much for taking that time, Charlotte, and she's in Brightlingsea. The Electric String Band, and don't confuse that with the Incredible String Band, which was a sort of British psychedelic folk band, um, was led by Denny Lane, the Electric String Band, on, on guitar and vocals, and uh, Trevor Burton of the Move on Guitar, and um, Vince Viv Prince uh, on drums, and a man called Binky McKenzie on bass guitar. And in June 67, the Electric String Band, they shared a bill with Jimi Hendrix and Procol Harum. So they're doing very, very well, but they didn't achieve, achieve enough national attention and soon broke up. So let's talk about bassist Binky McKenzie. During the 1960s, he played and recorded with lots of uh, great musicians, uh, blues legend Alexis Corner, jazz fusionist uh, John McLaughlin, and his parents were UK immigrants from Guyana. Now, uh, his father was Winston McKenzie, a jazz bass player. Um, and uh, in the mid-60s, McKenzie became friends with John McLaughlin. And they played together, and he re- McLaughlin recommended McKenzie to Miles Davis due to his bass playing abilities. So it was a real up-and-coming star, Binky McKenzie, who'd played with uh, the Electric String Band. Um um, uh, a man called Andy Frey is a very famous man who's uh, said uh, with the group Free said of Mackenzie he was an incredible bass player and when I say incredible I mean incredible he was like the next Jimi Hendrix on bass but he had some kind of chip on his shoulder and drugs well they seem to make it worse um, so he was literally a genius he said which is uh, an incredible praise isn't it um, but uh, Pete Brown who was a, a, an English performance poet and lyricist singer uh, played with Jack uh, Bruce and Cream he knew Binky well and he said I thought he was way ahead of his time but he had a bit of his chip on his shoulder because uh, the, the, it didn't matter how much you were good you were uh, he thought he because he was black he wouldn't get anywhere and he was uh, uh, he did a lot of drugs apparently uh, personal use but his parents got very heavy about it said Brown called the police and Binky did time and when he came out of the nick he was a very very angry young man indeed and then a tragedy happened in 1971 at the family home in Cricklewood in northwest London. Mackenzie went on a very violent rampage. He killed his mother, he killed his father and his brother-in-law. All the victims were stabbed multiple times and his younger sister, Candy, was also stabbed and... Um, seriously injured but she did survive in the attack uh, the, the the house was surrounded by armed police Mackenzie barricaded himself inside the bathroom uh, using a wardrobe and two double bases to, to get himself safe in there and there was a siege for four and a half hours eventually a police marksman went into the attic with a CS gas gun, bored a hole through the bathroom ceiling and fired a gas shell into the room. Mackenzie rushed down to the landing holding a knife in each hand. He was overcome, restrained, found guilty in the old Bailey on three counts of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility and was detained indefinitely at Broadmoor a high security psychiatric hospital. He was only 24 years old. So Binky McKenzie's sister Candy that we mentioned there, she went on having recovered from the attack to have a successful musical career as a backing singer. She recorded with people like Bob Marley, Leonard Cohen, Whitney Houston, Dinah Ross, and here she is in 1983 with her own heavy boogie funk cover of the classic Remind Me. Rise, I'm more in love each time. 
Listen to Bill's Big Bag of Jazz Onions on Cone Radio. Due to complaints from local residents about the inaccessibility and alienating nature of jazz, the program is broadcast late on Sunday evenings when hardly anyone is listening. Bill's Big Bag of Jazz Onions, inaccessible and alienating music, every Sunday at 11 p.m. listening to Box 39 Red Button Orbits with Bill Lawrence. A circular tour of great songs and the links and connections behind them. As everything we listen to on our musical roundabout is curated by you, our listeners. Tonight our Red Button Orbital journey starts and ends at the crossroads. So I'm Bill Lawrence, and I hope you're enjoying our red button tonight. Listener Mikey Crisps has created our next link in our journey tonight. So thank you very much, Mikey. I know you're coming all the way there from Clacton. Now, in the years that followed the tragedy uh, of, of, of Binky, Candy, his sister, uh, regularly accompanied her other brother, Bunny, on vocal session work, particularly reggae. Uh, she was on Aswad's first album, a couple of sessions with Bob Marley, Marley uh, and she was uh, she was signed um, with worked with Island Records. And for sixty years, Island Records has perhaps been one of the world's greatest record labels. Um, so uh, it's a long-established independent record label signing uh, Mavericks, Game Changers have altered the course of history, um, and musical history certainly, in Britain and Jamaica and America and beyond. Uh, it started in 1959, the Island Records began with a, with a jazz album uh, and it was uh, started by just a 21-year-old man called Cliss Brackwell, got a loan from his parents, and he went on to release a string of records, distributed the records himself, driving up the newly opened M1 in his little Mini Cooper, and uh, he set up some subsidiaries. You may recall a Black Swan label for Scar, a uh, Jump Up label for Trinidadian Calypsos. There was another subsidiary, Sue, for American R&B. And the pink label focused on alternative, cutting-edge British rock and folk. So you've got things uh, like um, 
the Spencer Davis Group, uh, Traffic. Um, they also released uh, albums for Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Jethro Tull, King Crimson, Fairport Convention, John Martin, Cat Stevens, Roxy Music, Robert Palmer. Well, I mean, this is a real high-impact record label, isn't it? And you uh, two were nurtured by Ireland. Uh, people like Barfly Tom Waits, Talking Heads spin-off Tom Tom Club, and marvellous litany of uh, music and records there. And in the noughties, there was Amy. Amy Winehouse, former Brit school student, um, came to prominence. She had a debut album, didn't she, called Frank. It was sort of a late-night melange of jazzy beats, rude girl lyrics, uh, announcing the arrival of what Plum says is the most gifted vocalist of her generation. And then there was the follow-up album, Back to Black, the creative zenith, I suppose, of Amy Winehouse. It won loads of awards, um, released during her short lifetime because she died, as we know, only a, a, in t- age 27 in July 2011. Love is a Losing Game was uh, from that album, uh, a song that arrived sounding like a standard, as if it, uh, it existed for years rather than being a freshly written by a 23-year-old. And so this is Amy singing Love is a Losing Game, and I've chosen this live performance which she gave to publicise the release of the Back to Black album, and it's a heartbreaking performance. <laughs> For you I was a flame Love is a losing game Five story fire as it came Love is a losing game Hearty soup of chat in a silky bowl of music. So, I'm Bill Lawrence. This is our Rock 39 Red Button Orbit show. Thank you to listener Katie Bricks, who's texted in suggesting we take this next step in our journey all the way from the crossroads where we started. 
Um, Amy Warehouse, you know, she had a series of well-documented issues with addiction. It's no secret that she spent time in rehab fighting various illnesses and issues. And one place where she underwent rehab was at Ozzy Island, which is an inhabited island in the estuary of the River Blackwater uh, in Essex in East England, very near to where we are here. It's just over a square mile in size, Ozzy, and connected to the north bank of the river by a causeway, which is covered at uh, high water. And the entire island is owned by uh, a music producer called Nigel Frieda, who created the pop group The Sugar Babes. He's also produced uh, The Rolling Stones. Now, following uh, the uh, human life uh, beginning, uh, there were some Neolithic villages, and uh, they were on Ozzy Island. The Vikings were there for the famous Battle of the Malden. So it's seen a few sites over the years has Ozzy Island. Uh, once the Romans have been, the William the Conqueror was there, lots of crusaders, lots of noblemen. And we come all the way forward. By 1903, Ozzy Island's probably the world's first rehabilitation centre. There's a gentleman called Frederick Charrington, who's a director of the Mylen Brewers, Charrington's. And uh, born out of guilt after he witnessed a man beat his wife after a night of heavy drinking in one of his own pubs, uh, he, he sort of counteracted the problems he believed were caused by alcoholism. He bought the island and he had this vision to help those suffering from uh, addiction. And uh, uh, so that's when it became a sort of temperance village. But it was abandoned uh, because the government took it over for World War I. And it had a bit of a, a checkered history. And by 2004, um, it was a rehabilitation centre where, where Amy Winehouse had attended. Today, it's just a sort of private retreat to record albums. And, of course, at a height of her success, Amy Whitehouse lived in Camden Town, didn't she? A unique area of North London where another user of the rehab facilities at Ozzy Island, the Walter Sickert, a hugely influential sort of avant-garde British artist, he came from Camden Town as well. As Camden, a mix of uh, markets, canals, cuisines and music is where The Clash had their rehearsal rooms and where they shot that iconic photo that graced the cover of their first album the eponymously named The Clash and this is side one track one Janie Jones Red Button Orbits with Bill Lawrence. A circular tour of great songs and the links and connections behind them. 
as everything we listen to on our musical roundabout is curated by you, our listeners. Tonight, our red button orbital journey starts and ends at the crossroads. Yes, well, thank you very much uh, for listening. And our linked musical journey tonight continues thanks to another listener from uh, Stanway, and this is Rory Socket, who suggests the next link in our journey. So we've just uh, linked the two rehab residents at Ozy Island to the North London's Camden Town and to the iconic photo taken there uh, in Camden of the Clash. And we've just heard Janie Jones, the opening track on that album, that debut album from the Clash in 1979. So the song is named after Janie Jones, who was a cabaret singer who organised sex parties at her Kensington home. Uh, the album cover features only three members of the band, there's Joe Strummer, uh, Mick Jones and Paul Simonon. The original drummer, Terry Chimes, had left the band before the photo was taken. Now, the cover photo was taken by a photographer called Kate Simon and it was in an alleyway directly opposite the front door of the band's rehearsal building in Camden. Who was Janie Jones then? Well, a little bit intriguing. I said she was a se- uh, organised sex parties, but there was a lot more to Janie Jones uh, than that, believe me. She began recording uh, songs uh, after another part of her show business career, which was a cabaret artist in the late 50s, uh, where she was a bit of a stripper, really, at the Windmill Theatre and later in clubs in Mayfair. Once she began recording songs, though, and embarking on this other career as a pop singer in the 1960s, she had some success with her, uh, in 1966 with a novelty song called Witch's Brew, got to number 46 in the UK singles chart, um, and, uh, and then subsequent releases, I'm afraid, failed to have any... Uh, sort of impact, really. Um, she did release a, a, a compilation album, We're All In Love With The World Of Janie Jones, in 1997. Anyway, at the height of her fame as a singer in the 60s, she did appear on various television programs, Thank Your Lucky Stars and Mike and Bernie Winters Show. And, and then her whole world absolutely caved in. She was in America trying to get her husband's career off the ground. She received a phone call concerning a story that had just broken in the uh, British tabloid newspaper, The News of the World. She returned to London. She was greeted, greeted by sort of mass tabloid hysteria uh, with headlines, Vice Queen Janie. And of course, you know, there's nothing the British public enjoys more than sex scandals involving the nation's ruling classes. But for Jude, Janie, fun was pretty much quickly over. She was sentenced in 1973 to seven years in prison for controlling prostitutes. Now, Quite a funny thing, I suppose, or strange, unique thing, funny, peculiar. In jail, she met and befriended the Moors murderer, Myra Hindley, and she made numerous television appearances insisting that Hindley was a reformed woman and she should be considered for release. But uh, in 1986, Hindley finally confessed to all her other crimes, which created a deep hatred between Jones uh, and Hindley. Uh, she wrote her autobiography, The Devil and Miss Jones. Uh, but she spent four green grisly years in prison, uh, released in 1977, only but to, to realise, uh, to learn when she's released. She becomes sort of a, a cause celebre for the punk rock movement, particularly Joe The Clash and Joe Strummer identifying with the plight of the good time girl uh, comes society's scapegoat. So you've got that wonderful chant, haven't you, in the band's self-titled album, He's in Love with Janie Jones' War. And Janie Jones sort of joined the Red Army faction, Gary Gilmore, and the safely pinned uh, Queen as a punk icon. Joe Strummer in 1982 booked uh, recording studios for Janie Jones to record a song he'd just written for her called The House of the Juju Queen. Um, he brought along some top musicians for that. Uh, other members of the Clash, Mick Jones, Paul Simonon, plus Charlie Charles and Mickey Gallagher from the Blockheads, and uh, a blast on the sax from Mel Collins of King, Crims- King Crimson. Uh, so this is a rare treat. This is Janie Jones and the House of the Juju Queen.
comes the chief of police. He says, I'm weary of burning porn magazines. You know how I crave to be a voodoo slave. Nine strips of leather. Red Button with big hairy speech knobs and gorgeous warm conversation spoons. That was then uh, the song uh, Jujuka House of the Juju Queen. Um, in the, playing the music was The Clash of the Blockheads and the song was it's sung by Janie Jones herself. So we now turn to Lister Angelou Taps who has emailed us from uh, West Mersey with the next connection in tonight's compendium that maps our musical expedition. So thank you, Angelou. And in 2006, the song Janie Jones by The Clash was covered by a band called Baby Shambles. Now, Baby Shambles were uh, an English uh, band, rock band, established in London, formed by a man called Pete uh, Doherty uh, during a hiatus from a very successful band he was in called The Libertines. And they have actually released three albums, or they did... In mid-2003, Pete Doherty was banned from playing with his band, The Libertines, until he could overcome his substance abuse problems. So as a response to that, Doherty formed Baby Shambles. Now, on the night of the first gig of Baby Shambles, their first ever gig, Doherty was... uh, Doherty was arrested for burglary and was sentenced to six months imprisonment for his crime. And when he was released from prison, Doherty rejoined the Libertines and sort of sidelined the Baby Shambles project. However, uh, by 2004, he was once more cast out of the Libertines, keeping up with this so far, and because of his drug use. So as a result, he brought Baby Shambles back to the fore. They toured Baby Shambles uh, amongst growing concerns about Doherty's drug dependence and during a gig in Blackpool, the band actually walked off the stage because it became clear that Doherty was too intoxicated to perform and a riot broke broke out at the London Astoria after Doherty failed to appear with about 200 of the audience invading the stage. They actually damaged the band's equipment including the destruction of drummer Gemma Clark's drum kit and she quit the band over the ongoing heavy use uh, heavy drug abuse really of the band members now one of the most admired live performances of baby shambles was an early live session which was uh, done on the zane low xzm radio show in 2004 when the critical response to the program and zane's high energy djing style launched him onto the bbc one radio one bbc radio one uh, showcasing new music and he continued Zane Lowe continued this career on Radio 1 in the evening slot which had once been occupied by the legendary the legendary John Peel uh, and Zane Lowe continued in the sort of John Peel sh- sh- slot for 11 years when uh, he left to launch the radio station element of Apple Music now whilst at Radio 1 Zane Lowe w- would devote one week every year to albums considered masterpieces and every show focused on a different album which Lowe and his team considered to be a classic um, and in 2012 Zane Lowe announced the masterpieces for that year would include his own personal choices rather than the masterpieces on traditional sort of greatest album hit lists and for the very final week Zane Lowe chose Queens of the Stone Age and their 2003 album Songs for the Deaf 
So, uh, Foo Fighters frontman, former Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl joined Queens of the Stone Age in late 2001 to record drums for this album, Songs for the Deaf, which was their third album. And Grohl said this record was supposed to sound bizarre like lightning in a bottle. It was a critical hit. And here is track three, No One Knows. Big Bag of Onions, every week on Tuesday at 8 p.m. Bill's Big Bag of Onions, a lovely compilation of lovely short stories written by some lovely friends of Cone Radio, and lovely music, introduced by the lovely Bill Lawrence, which all makes it a thoroughly lovely radio show. Bill's Big Bag of Onions, every week on Tuesday at 8 p.m. And I am Bill Lawrence here, and this is Box 39, Red Button, our later evening conversation show, coming live from Studio One and Colm Radio Towers on 106.6 FM and on the internet around the whole world and on your podcast platform. Now, our last musical relationship in our Orbit show took us from The Clash and Janie Jones to Baby Shambles, then to DJ Zane Lowe, and then on to Californian stoner band Queen of the Stone Age. Our penultimate link tonight comes from listener Chrissy Beagle from Great Bromley. So thank you so much, Chrissy, for taking the time to supply this link. 
So playing on that last track that we heard, No One Knows by the Queens of the Stone Age, Stone Age is a Chilean multi-instrumentalist and vocalist, Alan Johannes Mokulski, who played lap steel guitar, Ebo, organ, piano, flamenco guitar, and theremin. Now, not only has Mokluski played with the Queens of the Stone Age and created his own band, Eleven, he's been involved with bands like them, Crooked Vultures, PJ Harvey, Arctic Monkeys. So he's right up there uh, as a musician and artist. The theremin, played by Mikulski on the Queen of the Stone Age track, is an electronic musical instrument controlled without any physical contact. You just don't touch it. And it's named after its inventor, Leon Theremin, who painted in the device way back in the day in 1928. So the controlling section of the theremin consists of two metal antennas which sense the relative position of the theremist's hands and these control oscillators for frequency with one hand and amplitude, which is essentially volume, with the other and the electric signals from the theremin are therefore amplified and sent to a loudspeaker. The sound of the theremin I suppose it's often associated with eerie situations. It's been used in movie soundtracks and television shows, uh, as well as rock music. And it's distinguished amongst musical instruments in that it's played without physical contact. The theremist, there he's at the front of the instrument and his hands are just moving around these antennas. The higher notes are played by moving the hand closer to the pitch antenna and the louder notes are we said by moving the hands away from the volume antenna. Um... Unlike touched instruments where simply you just halt the play or you dampen a sort of a resonator in the traditional sense, silence the instruments, the theremist actually has to play the rests as well as the notes, which is quite unusual. So you play the, the bits you hear and the play you play the bits that don't seem to make any noise. Theremins started being incorporated into popular music probably from the end of the 1940s. And the most famous and most frequently cited example, of course, is uh, Good Vibrations from the Beach Boys. Frank Zappa, uh, he played theremin on the album's Freak Out and we're only in it for the money. Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin, he's used a variation of the theremin during performance of Whole Lot of Love. Uh, Brian Jones, the Rolling Stones, used the instrument uh, on their Satanic Majesty's Request album. And uh, Paige McConnell, keyboardist of the American rock band Fish, plays the theremin on rare occasions. And when Simon and Garfunkel performed their song The Boxer during a concert at Madison Square Garden in December 2003, they utilised a theremin. Now, the original recording of the song had a steel guitar and a piccolo trumpet in unison, but for this performance, theremist Bob Shimmer played the solo, as you can hear now. I'm just a poor boy and my story's seldom told I've sold my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles such are promises All eyes and jests still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest When I left my home and my family I was no more than a boy In the company of strangers In the quiet of the railway station Running scared Laying low Seeking out the poor quarters Where the ragged people go Looking for the places Only they would know
So, our music pathway is nearly complete tonight here on Box 39 Red Button. And our final step to conclude our orbit will bring us back to where we started. And it's this final step is supplied by listener Timmy Sash from the um, area of Colchester around Abbey Fields. And... Uh, our last step took us via the theremin to what we just heard, Simon and Garfunkel and the boxer. Now, Paul Simon began his career as a folk music performer. He usually played solo, but occasionally with Art Garfunkel, even in those very early days. And he visited Essex clubs and pubs for some legendary performances in the early to mid-1960s. He travelled over from America and sort of, uh, you know, uh, spent a lot of time around here. He played at the Brentwood Hermitage Folk Club as well as various pubs there. He also appeared at folk clubs in Romford and Chelmsford and Braintree on, on several occasions. Uh, it was whilst in Britain, of course, playing these pubs and clubs in 1964, 1965, around at the time, that Paul Simon wrote the song Homeward Bound. And uh, legend says it's about his journey from a folk club in Widnes up north back to his final destination, Brentwood Station. Uh, his lodgings were at 64 Crescent Road in Brentwood, which, as we all know, is just up there from Brentwood Station. And the inspiration for the wonderful Kathy's song? Well, Kathy is a real woman. She's called Kathleen Chitty. And at 18, she was the love of Paul's life. And they met in Brentwood in Essex back there in 1963. So he recorded his first album with Art Garfunkel back in America uh, and he left the US to play in pubs and folk clubs and coffee houses all across England and it was in Brentwood where uh, Paul met Kathy Chitty and that's pretty much a love at first sight experiences and Paul Simon and Kathy Chit Kathleen Chitty became inseparable thereafter. Now, his song, The Sound of Silence, began to gather traction back in the in the States, so Paul decided to return to the US a few months later, and Kathy, well, she decided to remain in England. She's never a fan of all the attention. She chose to remain out of the spotlight, and the couple split not, not, uh, not a long time after that. The local boys' school in Brentwood, which I must uh, admit to having uh, a little bit of... Uh, I went there, I admit to that. Um, they used to have a joint sixth form folk club with the girls over the road, and Paul Simon played for them a couple of times, as did a very young David Bowie for the Lower Third School Dance Summer Concert. And uh, there were many more who played these folk clubs in Brentwood and nearby Chelmsford, including, oh, great names, John Mayle, the Yardbirds, 10 years after, The Who, Fleetwood Mac, The Animals, even, uh, you know, the psychedelic phase Pink Floyd played there. And uh, famously, Jimi Hendrix played one night at that Brentwood-based Hermitage Folk Club. And it was Hendrix who, at the height of his fame in 1969, prime time live television at 6 o'clock in the evening, changed from the scheduled song Hey Joe uh, that had been re rehearsed to a very unscheduled and overlong live version of Cream's Sunshine of Your Love, which brought the house down but actually got Hendrix banned by the BBC. And it was the Cream, the supergroup made up of Clapton, Eric Clapton, a Jack Bruce, Ginger Baker, who performed their version of the 1930 Robert Johnson Delta Blues classic Crossroads. So let's listen to a new and old version of Crossroads. The new is from our house band, House Gang Exit, led by Henry. The older is that Cream classic from 1965. So look, our musical orbit is complete. I hope you've enjoyed it. And then you'll all thank you so much to all our listeners who help guide us on our journey. I'm Bill Lawrence. Be seeing you.
is a Guppy production for Colne Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. 